Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I I come back after two weeks on another continent to find out that the Mueller report is out, but not out out. You'll finish the rest of that. Uh, Meanwhile, um, every once in a while on this program and in real life, one likes to uh, check in on the status of America's newest fighter jet. Newest and most expensive, don't you know? It should be, shouldn't it? I mean, everything else is getting, you know, look at the movie tickets. Anyway, the F-35, it remains woefully that's the adjective uh, that's the adverb being applied by the register an english tech journal woefully unprepared is the f35 against malware infections and other cyber attacks they're quoting pogo the nonprofit watchdog project on government oversight it is the most expensive weapon system in history is the f35 it's plagued with problems including a lack of protection against software problems that would cripple its critical systems or critical its critical systems cybersecurity protections are particularly important you see because the aircraft relies so heavily on a network of automated systems to operate properly the fully integrated nature of all f-35 systems makes cybersecurity more essential than for any other aircraft says dan grazier of pogo he obtained documentation that the jet has low, fully mission-capable ca- rates. That means it's rarely fully ready for combat. Legacy aircraft already in service are equipped with software-enabled subsystems. While a hacker could penetrate the GPS system in a legacy plane, because the subsystems are not fully integrated, a hacker could not also access the communication system, for example, he says. The F-35 is inherently far more vulnerable. That is to say... The more the separate systems, software systems on the plane are connected to each other, the easier it is to hack the whole shooting match. Literally, shooting match. A report recently from the U.S. government's General Accountability Office found the Department of Defense had failed to protect the software used to control the F-35's weapon systems. Just, oh, that. Oh, just the software to control the weapon systems. Anybody could. Testers could take control of weapons with relatively simple tools and techniques. Separate subsystems of the F-35, such as the active electronically scanned array radar, the distributed aperture system, and the communications navigation and identification avionic system, all share data. That's like we dis- when we discovered a while back, I don't know if it's still true, that the entertainment system on commercial aircraft is um, on the same network as the navigation system. Just smoosh it all together, babe. It's smart. The GAO's auditors warned just compromising one of these components could bring down the others. The automotive, uh, sorry, the autonomic logistics information system, a network of onboard gear and ground-based web browser access systems that serve as the primary diagnostic and management tools for the planes continues to harbor a number of security vulnerabilities that have been known of for years and not yet resolved, according to Pogo. Should one of those flaws be exploited by, you know, the bad guys, 
Grazier warned the tech-heavy F-35s could end up crippled by deliberately falsified instrument readings as a result of that exploitation are grounded for bogus repairs. The system is used to schedule maintenance and order spare parts. One flaw identified all the way back in 2012 would incorrectly report aircraft as unfit for service. That's yet to be fixed over six years later. Many previously confirmed F-35 vulnerabilities vulnerabilities, come on now, have not been fixed, meaning that enemy hackers could potentially shut down the ALIS network, steal secret data from the network and onboard computers, and perhaps prevent the F-35 from flying or accomplishing its missions, says Grazer. They didn't unleash a Department of Defense red team of good guy hackers on the ALIS system. The U.S. government, no, it paid Lockheed, the manufacturer of the plane, to do do the uh, red team work. And the U.S. Department of Defense just accepted the results. Why wouldn't you trust Lockheed? Come on. That uh, regulation, soft-touch regulation, we've seen in action this uh, very month with uh, Boeing. The uh, code on the the F-35 is basically supposed to automatically detect any problems developing in the fighter jets well ahead of time and arrange for repairs and spare parts so the planes can be fixed before they need to be grounded. This is to save time and money with consistently updated databases of spare parts, logistic plans, and aircraft testing records. Yet a report from the Pentagon says inputting information about repairs into the system often took longer than the repairs. The F-35 program has fallen seriously behind schedule due to delays, glitches. Well, you would fall behind schedule due to delays. Glitches and manufacturing nightmares that have driven what was supposed to be a low-cost next-generation fighter into a $122 million per plane expense. Each one costs $30,000 an hour to fly. U.S., U.K., Australia, Israel, Japan, and Canada and Italy are customers for the aircraft. This isn't the first time software problems have been reported in the F-35. Last year, reports surfaced that the onboard code for a number of the various systems on the plane had become so incompatible with one another, they hampered the ability for manufacturers to perform flight tests. Hey, you know, don't test it. Just just fly it. They'll figure it. The, the plane is so smart, it'll figure it out. Back in the USA where the F-35 is keeping us safe. Hello, welcome to the show. It's very nice to go traveling To Paris, London, and Rome It's oh so nice to go traveling But it's so much nicer, yes, it's so much nicer to come home It's very nice to just wander the camel route to Iraq. It's oh so nice to just wander, but it's so much nicer. Yes, it's oh so nice to wander back. The mamzelles and Fräulein and the senoritas are sweet. But they can't compete Cause they just don't have What 
the models high on Madison Ave. It's very nice to be footloose with just a toothbrush and comb. It's oh so nice to be footloose, but your heart starts singing when you're home with winging across the phone. And you know your fate is where the Empire State is. All you contemplators, the view from Miss Liberty's dome. It's very nice to go traveling, but it's oh so nice to come home. Muchachas are rare, but they can't compare with that sexy line that parades each day at sunset and vine. It's quite the life to play gypsy and roam as gypsies will roam. It's quite the life to play gypsy. But your heart starts singing when you're homeward winging across the foam and the Hudson River makes you start to quiver like the latest flivver that's simply dripping with chrome. It's very nice to go traveling, but it's all so. Nice to come home. No more customs. Burn the passport. No more packing and unpacking. Light the home fire. Get my slippers. Make a pizza. Flivver, 1920s slang for automobile, was obsolete in the 50s when that song was recorded. But from Santa Monica, California, home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Warm. The one-time award-winning News of the Warm, won't you? And won't you again? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Well, there's some good news. It's temporary good news, but I think at this point we'll take it. A new study has revealed clouds are modifying the warming created by human-caused climate change in some parts of the world. Led by Swansea University's Tree Ring Research Group, who knew? Researchers analyzed information contained in the rings of ancient pine trees from northern Scandinavia, revealing how clouds have reduced the impact of natural phases of warmth in the past. 
they're doing so again now. Even though northern Scandinavia should be strongly affected by global warming, the area has experienced little summer warming over recent decades. That's in stark contrast to the hemispheric trend of warming temperatures, which is strongly linked to rising greenhouse gas emissions. According to this study, temperature changes have been accompanied by an increase in cloudiness over northern Scandinavia that, in turn, has reduced the impact of warming. Mary Gagan, Mary Gagan, professor of geography at Swansea University, said that surface warming caused by rising greenhouse gases is modified by many complicated feedbacks, one thing changing in response to another. So there are large geographical variations in the temperature of a particular place at a particular time as the global average temperature rises. One of the most important and most poorly understood climate feedbacks is the relationship between temperature and clouds. The research team analyzed tree ring records, <laughs> put a ring on it, to find out what summer temperatures were like in the past and how cloudy it was. Using their data, the team produced a new reconstruction of summer cloud cover for northern Scandinavia, compared it to existing temperature reconstructions to establish the relationship. Professor Gagan said most people know the width of a tree ring can tell us what the temperature was like, but we can also measure other things in tree rings, such as the types, the isotopes of carbon and water the wood is made of. That tells us how cloudy it was in the summer the tree ring grew. I don't know if the trees know that. Another author explained, we found that over short timescales, increased cloud cover leads to cooler temperatures and vice versa in the past. However, over longer timescales, decades to centuries, in warmer times, such as the medieval, there was increased cloud cover in this part of the world, which reduced local temperatures. This helps to explain the feedback relationship between cloud cover and temperature, which is one of the major uncertainties in modeling future climate. We can now predict, says this author, Professor Danny McCarroll, that as the global temperature continues to rise, warming will be moderated in northern Scandinavia by increasing cloud cover. Next step is to find out whether this is true for other parts of the world. Yeah, no kidding. The study was published in Geophysical Research Letters. Who writes letters? And a more kind of kind of good news, maybe, some point of time. A major Greenland glacier that was one of the fastest shrinking ice and snow masses on Earth is growing again. That's according to a new NASA study. The Jakobshavn glacier was retreating almost two miles and thinning nearly 100 feet annually about seven years ago. It started growing again at about the same rate in the past two years. That's according to a study in Nature Geoscience. But the but, the big but, pardon me, the big but, study authors and outside scientists think this is temporary. Maybe got back. That was kind of a surprise. We kind of got used to a runaway system, said uh, climate scientist Jason Box. The good news, it's a reminder that it's not necessarily going that fast. But it is going. He wasn't part of the study, said this is probably the most important Greenland gate... Greenland geisha. Oh, come on now. Not geisha. Get your Greenland glacier because it discharges the most ice in the northern hemisphere. For all of Greenland, it is king. Wow. Wonder who would be the minor royals. The um, natural cyclical cooling of North Atlantic waters likely 
caused the glacier to reverse course, said the lead author of the study, a NASA glaciologist. Colleagues say this coincides with a flip of the North Atlantic Oscillation, a natural and temporary cooling and warming of the parts of the ocean. It's like a distant cousin to El Nino. If El Nino had family, which I don't think it does, even though it's called it, it's a child, that's the name. But you know, it's a metaphor. While this is good news on a temporary basis, this is bad news on the long term because it tells scientists that ocean temperature is a bigger player in glacier retreats and advances than was previously thought. Over the decades, you see, the water has been and will be warming from man-made climate change, noting about. 90% of the heat trapped by greenhouse gases goes into the ocean. In the long run, we'll probably have to raise our predictions of sea level rise again, says the author. So enjoy, enjoy a bigger glacier while you can. News of the Warm, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And while we're on the good news, bad news tip, this is about the bees. I'm going to tell you about the bees. Let me tell you about the bees. Many insect pollinator species are disappearing from areas of Great Britain, according to a new study led by the Center for Ecology and Hydrology. You can't have the one without the other. Yes, you can, but they don't. It measured the presence of 353 wild bee and hoverfly species across the country, spanning the years between 1980 and 2013. It showed one-third of the species experienced declines terms of the number of areas in which you could find them, one-tenth increased their uh, coverage. That's the good news, the one-tenth. Oh, and a positive but unexpected finding of the study also was the increase in bee species responsible for pollinating flowering crops, such, such as oilseed, you should pardon the expression, rape. This could be in response to the large increases of mass flowering crops grown during the study period. And also government-subsidized schemes that encourage farmers to plant more of the wildflowers that those bee species feed on. This published in the journal Nature Communications. It shows, on average, the geographic range of bee and hoverfly species declined by 25%. That's equivalent to a net loss of 11 species from each one kilometer square. Overall losses more notable for pollinator species found in northern Britain. This may be a result of climate change. Species that prefer cooler temperatures may have to be reducing their geographical spread in response to the fact that there are less parts of the country that they find, uh, you know, comfy. Dr. Gary Powney, who led the research, says, We used cutting-edge statistical methods. While the increase in key crop pollinators is good news, there's still a relatively small group of species, with species having declined overall it would be risky to rely on this group to support long-term food security. Oh, that thing. If anything happens to them in the future, there will be fewer other species to step up and fulfill the essential role of crop pollination. What about robots? Why, aren't we, why don't we have robot pollinators yet? Dr. Pounty says non-crop pollinators are also vital for a healthy countryside rich in biodiversity because of their crucial role in pollinating wildflowers, but also as a... Hey, if you're, if you're taking me along on your trip out to the desert today, if you're in Southern California, stick with it. I know, it's going to be really ridiculously crowded, but it's gorgeous. Just speaking of wildflowers there. But it's a key food resource, you see, for other wildlife would be the non-pollinating 
bees. Wildflowers and pollinators rely on each other for survival. Losses in either are a major cause for concern when we consider the health and beauty of our natural environment. If you want to see the beauty of our natural environment and you're in Southern California, I do recommend get out there. And if you want to have a good time, get out there, you know, take a day off work. Don't do it on the weekend. Now, news of the godly. Well, this sounds a lot like reparations. Deadline Santiago, Chile, an appeals court down there. Ruled this week, the Roman Catholic Church must pay compensation to three victims of the Reverend Fernando Caradima. That was the country's most notorious pedophile priest. He's number one. The court in the Chilean capital said the church must pay about $150,000 each to uh, the three victims for, quote, moral damage, unquote. It also overturned a lower court ruling that had found no proof of a church cover-up. So no exoneration. The ruling could prompt hundreds of other people who've reported clerical sexual abuses or cover-ups by the Chilean church to seek compensation. No kidding. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. There's always more of that, as you know. As you may as you may have noticed. Now, some news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. And it, this is really about the family, the Murdoch family, as opposed to the corporation, because the corporation has slimmed down quite a bit. And therefore, the family coffers are now um, flush with funds. The hundred, no, it's actually $87 billion sale of the Fox studio to Disney. So the Sydney Morning Herald reports that the Murdoch clan gathered down under from across the globe to mark a special occasion. Three days of celebrations of the 20th anniversary of Rupert's son, Lachlan, marrying Sarah. With the Murdochs, the family always comes first, says one of the family's oldest friends. People don't realize that. Here's how the family comes first. Attending was uh, the oldest of Murdoch's children, Prue, product of Murdoch's first marriage. She uh, recently set a new record for the most expensive terrace house in Australia. Good for her. Also due to attend, Rupert's second wife and the mother of Lachlan, Elizabeth, and James, Anna. She was married to the media baron for nearly 30 years before their spectacular divorce in 1999, when he took up with his former Chinese translator, Wendy Deng. That marriage occurred just 17 days after the ink dried on the divorce papers from Anna. But no Wendy Deng at this event. No, Rupert was there with his fourth wife, former supermodel Jerry Hall, formerly girlfriend, longtime girlfriend of the currently ailing Mick Jagger. Because family always comes first. The two, well, the second wife and the fourth wife, I'm sure, are going to have a groovy weekend because they're nice people doing nice things. Well, they call me the honky tonk foggy, but this geezer's getting ready to blow. I'm like 
stogie. I'm rocking my world nice and slow. I got me a rock and roll woman. Then I had a kind of hair. I know I look glum, but she's under my thumb. Wild horses couldn't end this affair. Jim Ebersole Jr. Well, here we go again. After revamping the 2026 Winter Olympic bidding procedure, the International Olympics Committee is set to overhaul its host city selection process again for the 2030 and 2032 games. Last year, President Thomas Bach 
insisted the IOC had turned the page on Olympic candidatures after trouble-hit bidding processes for the 2022 and 2024 Games. Agenda 2020 reforms were superseded by the launch in February of last year of a fresh package of reforms to revamp the IOC's Olympic bidding model, labeled the new norm. Not a burger place. It was a set of 118 reforms designed to slash costs of games delivery for candidate cities. But just a year later, in the wake of a handful of withdrawals from the initial Seven City 2026 bidding contest, the IOC has decided to again reboot its candidature procedure. This according to AroundTheRings.com. Speaking to press this week after a two-day IOC meeting, board meeting, Bach suggested that previous bidding revamp had not gone far enough. The IOC chief admitted the 2026 procedure had faced some challenges, but said the IOC had been allowed to get its message across about bidding and organizational costs with plenty of interest in the 2030 and 2032 games. Quote, we have to acknowledge that times are continuing to change. We want to be on the top of this development, said Bach. A new IOC working group has been assigned the task of coming up with a new package of measures to transform Olympic bidding. The IOC president ruled out any radical change in the way decisions were made in appointing, not anointing, host cities. And Japan Olympic Committee President Tsunikazo Takeda has announced his intention to retire this June as he faces formal investigation by French authorities on allegations of bribery. No, it's not an Olympic sport yet. Takeda will retire as president after serving 10 terms over 17 years because of suspected bribery in Japan's successful bid to host the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. A former equestrian with ties to the Japanese royal family, Takeda boasts international connections in the sports world, which helped elevate his position position within the International Olympic Committee. He was awarded the prestigious role of chairman of the Tokyo Olympic Bidding Committee in 2012. But French prosecutors suspect he paid some $28 million in bribes to a Singapore consulting company, Black Tidings, to secure the votes of African IOC members for the Tokyo 2020 Olympic bid in 2013. He said the deals were for legitimate consulting, but failed to reveal the nature of the services provided. It's believed the payments ended up in the hands of Papa Diak, the son of disgraced athletics chief Lamine Diak, in return for influencing the ballot. Last week, Takeda apologized, saying he was painfully sorry for causing trouble around the world. He also acknowledged the timing was appropriate to make way for a new era. Because the Olympics is a movement, and we all need one. Every day!
from Santa Monica, this is Le Show. And ladies and gentlemen, news of the Army Corps of Engineers, the Let Us Try people, they just keep trying. In December 2015, they announced a $490 million plan to remove all the nuclear waste from the Niagara Falls storage site in Lewiston, New York. Didn't even know it was there. No, I didn't. They did. More than three years later, all the waste remains buried under 20 feet of clay. I said feet of clay. The Corps has not followed through with the removal work or even issued a record of decision authorizing the work. Community leaders worry the delay and a budgetary revision sought by the Trump administration signal a change in plans. We thought our primary objective was virtually complete, said the chairman of the Lake Ontario Ordnance Works Restoration Advisory Board. Just work on shortening the name of your board first, dude. The waste from the World War II atomic bomb project and post-war industrial projects lies buried under the north side of a road about a mile east of a school. There's no been, uh, been no change in the removal plan, said Bill Kovalevsky, special projects branch chief for the Corps' Buffalo office. The project manager way back in 2015 told the Buffalo News at the time that the removal plan would go through a 12- to 18-month review process before the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works would sign the Record of Decision. That was submitted to the Assistant Secretary's office July two years ago, but there was no Assistant Secretary then. post wasn't filled until early last year. Two weeks ago, President Trump's budget proposed moving the cleanup program from the Army Corps to the Energy Department to stabilize the funding streams and contribute some efficiencies, according to Kovalevsky. I don't think that would have any impact on the Niagara Falls storage site, but he said there's been no planning for what happens if the Energy Department inherits authority for the project. The government has a history of not following through on promises to clean up the site, according to the vice chairman of the Niagara County Legislature. Radioactive waste was consolidated between 1982 and 86 at the site of the long-demolished Ordnance Works water treatment plant. Within 10 years of that, they were going to have a decision on when and where they were going to move it, said that vice chairman of the legislature of the county. He added, it never happened. Hey, let him try. Just let him try. The Animal Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. Now, news of America's longest war. President Trump is uh, supposedly trying to wind down America's 18-year-old troop commitment to Afghanistan, but the our old friend, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, warns now of the risks in leaving the country without significant financial pledges and protections for women under a government that supposedly would include the Taliban. That's who we're talking to. From integrating 60,000 Taliban fighters into the Afghan army to countering endemic corruption and the flourishing opium trade, a future government in Kabul may be overwhelmed, even if there's a peace deal backed by the U.S., Afghanistan, and the Taliban. That's according to a report issued this week by that special inspector general. Without financial support from international donors, the government of Afghanistan, he says, cannot survive. With or without a peace deal... Afghanistan is likely to continue to grapple with multiple violent extremist organizations who threaten Afghanistan and the international community. 
That report comes as Salme Khalilzad, Trump's special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation, reconciliation. It's the start of a 16-day trip to Europe, the Middle East, and South Asia to negotiate peace. The uh, Afghan government has been shut out of the U.S. talks with the Taliban so far. They've refused to speak, have the Taliban with the government of Ashraf Ghani, although the U.S. rep says such talks must happen eventually. Corruption remains a top strategic threat, according to the Inspector General. Failure to combat it would mean U.S. reconstruction programs at best will continue to be subverted and at worst will fail. A peace deal with the Taliban would raise questions about whether the rights of women would be guaranteed and upheld in light of the group's history of repression of women when it ruled the country. Some experts believe the precipitous withdrawal of U.S. forces could lead to the deterioration of political and economic freedoms enjoyed by Afghan women, the report says. That, in turn, would make international donors less likely to keep funding the government in Kabul. Without sufficient preparation conditions on the ground and funding plans, the Inspector General concluded, we may as well set the cash ablaze on the streets of Kabul for all the good it will do. Well, that's what he thinks. What do they think? From Afghanistan Public Radio, nobody gives you more ways to give. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, you can distinguish it from uptown Kabul, because it's downhill. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Flick and Flack, the Publicity Brothers. <laughs> Welcome to a very special edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan Automobile Association, the AAA, your first call for roadside service since early next year. <laughs> <laughs> My younger brother, you called this a very special edition of this program, which mm-hmm. is already very special because it's ours. <laughs> What's different today? Uh, well, my dear junior brother, for the first time in the history of this program, I'm glad you asked me a question. <laughs> <laughs> you read the latest report of the special inspector general on our beautiful country? I skimmed it, yes, but I'm a skimmer. (laughs) As I recall, he said we need uh, international donations to continue our beloved war, but the presence of the Taliban and the eventual new government would discourage such donors. Mm, That's damn good skimming. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why today's program is our very first war-a-thon. But we have pledged drives all the time. Maybe even more frequently. <laughs> True, but they just raise money for ourselves. Mm. On this warathon, we're asking for donations to keep the war going, and we'll take them live right here on our program. Ooh, this would mean that anybody who really, truly stands behind our glorious struggle against the people we're going to make peace with should call in and be acknowledged publicly for their contribution, Right. No, oh, you read the script as well as I could. <laughs> so let's get the warathon started. We have nothing to lose but time and money. Hello, you're on Karzai Talk. Greetings, El Presidente, from the great state of Houston. Oh, I recognize that voice. Mm, sounds like the fellow I used to argue with when we were both leaders of our respective countries. <laughs> Hello, Mr. President Bush. Hamid, Hamid I, I can't even remember what we argued about. <laughs> Heck, I can barely remember being president, but I, I do remember respectivating you, and, and Laura and I still do. Uh, Mr. President Bush, this is Mahmoud. And- 
Moody, you still selling those bootleg Toyotas? Uh, they are fresh from the truck, sir. And where the truck comes from, not even Allah knows. <laughs> <laughs> but, sir, yes. although we love to hear the sound of your voice almost as much as the sound of ours, <laughs> we need to take many calls. So what might be your donation to the continuation of our fine war that I believe you started? Heck, even forgot I did that. Mm. Iraq, I remember because of the thing. Anywho, you fellas know I've, I've taken up painting. Mm -hmm. It's just a language I feel a little bit more at home with than, uh, say, language. I'm donating two of my largest works, a brand new one of me in the bathtub, and mm. then uh, what you might call its mate, mm. just a, a painting of the bathtub itself. Uh, we can auction them off uh, here in Houston and send you the proceeds by FedEx Express. Or, you, you know, you could auction them off out there and, and, and save a bundle on the shipping. Ooh, quite an opening donation, Mr. President. We'll figure out the details after the show. Okay, they're out drying in the sun, so just give me a holler. Thank you, sir, and thanks for the call. Well, we certainly are starting off the war with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> he actually wrote that. <laughs> Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hello, this is Nasrullah. A long-time corrupt government official, uh, first-time caller. Ooh, interesting. This caller knows where the truck comes from. <laughs> Nazrullah, uh, I assume you're an official of the Afghan government, or you were? I still am. Mm. Uh, presidents come and go, but uh, baby still needs new shoes. Mm. How old is that baby now? <laughs> so, much as we'd love the pointless banter of our regular format, mm -hmm. this is the Warathon. Why are you interested in donating to the war? Uh, without foreign troops in our country, there is not enough money around to uh, corrupt the poodle. <laughs> I'm doing this in my own self-interest and in the interest of the whole corruption community. I'm donating 10,000 Afghanis. Mm. Uh, just for those listening outside our country, that's money, not people. Although I think Nasrullah would say people are money. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call. Oh, I think so far we've paid for ten drone attacks and one armed skirmish. Mm. Let's keep the momentum going. Hello, you're on the cars I talk war a -thon. Hi, uh, this is Barack. Uh, my bracket this year sucked, so... No, I just thought I'd call in. Mr. Barak, thank you for the call. We miss your undisclosed surprise visits to our country. You know, I, I've made several recent ones, mm. but they were so undisclosed, even I didn't know about them. Sir, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so perhaps you'd like to share with what's left of our audience why you're donating to help save the war. Well, you know, Hamid, you and I had our little squabbles. <laughs> but I call this conflict the good war during my first presidential campaign. In many ways, I really meant it, especially in the area of advancing women's rights in your country. Mm. We know the Taliban isn't there yet, <laughs> so a uh, somewhat longer war might, you know, provide time for bringing them out of the Middle Ages. You know what would help, sir? Mm? Might we use your contribution to hold a nationwide Miss Taliban competition? <laughs> hey, it's your money, you know, once I give it to you. In any case, I'm donating 10% of the proceeds from my next book, coming out later this year. Really? What's the title? I'll pre-order. -pre it's called, Even I Miss Me Now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, and thanks for the call. 
We'll continue to take donations off the air. We have to make way now for Hindu Kush Home Companion. We had help today from our callers and from our country's most exciting internet startup, delivering new car wheels to your door. Hubhub.com. Legal services for cars. I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Hamid. And I'm Mahmoud. Join us again next time for a semi-regular edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Savannah, Georgia, Alderman Van Johnson... He's running for mayor, apologized this week for speaking at a political meeting that blocked non-black reporters from attending. He said during the press conference that while he has a responsibility for the people at the meeting, he also has a responsibility to the people who were barred from coming in. I know certainly that if this was an event that was held and excluded other folks, then I know I would be one of the first ones to be outraged about it. And this outrage would be understandable and it would be justified. His apology came after local news reports of the event generated negative media attention throughout the country. Really? Mayor Elidia Loach said in a statement issued later that Johnson's apology came two days after his opponent had initially defended his attendance. Since then, it's become a national embarrassment, Loach said. Really? Also, this week, the black press-only policy is posted on the door of the church where the meeting was held, was condemned at the Georgia Capitol by three state lawmakers on the floor of the House. Get off the floor. Actress Lupita Nyong's, uh, Nyong'o has apologized after facing backlash for comments she made that one of the characters she plays in the horror film Us was inspired by a disorder that impacts people who have experienced emotional or physical trauma. The thought that I would in a way offend them was not my intention, she said. In my mind, I wasn't interested in vilifying or demonizing the condition. I crafted the character with love and care, unquote. In this movie about a family who encounters their evil doppelgangers, Nyong'o plays two characters, Adelaide and Red. During an interview at the L.A. premiere, she said she drew inspiration for Red's husky, shaky voice from spasmodic dysphonia, a neurological condition that causes a person's voice to go into periods of spasm. It affects roughly... 50,000 people in North America, and is triggered by illnesses such as viral infection, head trauma, bronchitis, surgery, or a stressful event, according to, yes, the National Spasmodic Dysphonia Association. The actress's comments quickly do criticism from disability and disorder organizations. Disorder! Disorder! Weeks after generating controversy for discussing a past event in which he wanted to bait a black man into fighting him to avenge a recently raped raped friend, Liam Neeson has released an apology for the remarks. Quote, over the last several weeks, I've reflected on and spoken to a variety of people who were hurt by my impulsive recounting of a brutal rape of a dear female friend nearly 40 years ago and my unacceptable thoughts and actions at that time in response. The horror of what happened to my friend ignited irrational thoughts that do not represent the person I am. In trying to explain those feelings today, I missed the point and hurt many people at a time when language is so often weaponized. This is not about justifying my anger all those years ago. It is also about the impact my words have today. I was wrong to do what I did. I recognize that. Although the comments I made do not reflect in any way my true feelings, nor me. They were hurtful and decisive. I profoundly apologize. Unquote. Did he say that? Or did the person he's not say that? 
The BBC has apologized and agreed to pay damages to Ukraine's president, Petro Poroshenko. The apology relates to an incorrect report claiming a payment was made to extend a meeting between Poroshenko and Donald Trump. An article published last May but since removed from the BBC website alleged nearly half a million dollars was paid to Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer. The allegation relating to a meeting June two years ago was untrue. We apologize to Mr. Poroshenko for any distress caused and have agreed to pay him damages, legal costs, and have participated in a joint statement in open court, said the BBC. A right-wing group at Arizona State University has apologized after its co-founders were found last week to have made anti-Semitic, racist, homophobic, and other offensive comments. The College Republicans United, established last year as an offshoot, unaffiliated, of the College Republicans chapter, came under scrutiny after a local newspaper published photos and comments shared by co-founders Richard Thomas and Kevin DeKuyper. The... Uh, Dossier, compiled by a former club member, included a photo showing Thomas, a senior, holding a tiki torch and a gallon of milk while posing near a white Dodge Challenger. Tiki torches were carried at the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. You remember that? A counter-protester was killed by a white supremacist driving a Dodge Challenger. White supremacists have tried to use milk to highlight their supposed genetic supremacy by falsely arguing that only white people can properly diagnose, uh, sorry, can di- properly digest lactose. In a Facebook Messenger comment leaked to the uh, alternative newspaper, Thomas posted a video of a child with Rett syndrome while asking, remind me why we can't have a eugenics policy again? In other chats, he called the black rapper Childish Gambino degenerate monkey filth and used multiple parentheses, an online anti-Semitic symbol, when speaking of the Rosenbergs, an American Jewish couple executed for espionage for the Soviet Union in the 1950s. De Kuyper had defended his choice to use a picture of himself and Candace Owens, a black conservative woman, on his Facebook profile after being asked over Messenger, what's with the N in your profile picture? The club's leaders initially appeared remorseless, decrying the Newspaper article is a hit piece, but uh, now comes the apology. He was, Thomas was, according to a statement by the club, at a Halloween party without realizing he was in front of a Dodge, Dodge Challenger. No time has Richard or CRU ever supported racism or what happened at Charlottesville. Judge us on our accomplishments don't judge us based on private conversations that were said to former members who had the ill intentions of using blackmail on club members. DeKuyper also apologized, though claimed his remarks were construed by the media in a negative light far beyond what was actually meant. Uh, Thomas said there was alcohol involved in the photo. DeKuyper said, I sincerely hope I can be given and that we can move on. Oh, it's a left-wing organization, sir. New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft apologized in his first public statement since he was charged for soliciting prostitution in Florida last month. I am truly sorry, he said in a statement. I know I've hurt and disappointed my family, my close friends, my co-workers, our fans, and many others who rightfully hold me to a higher standard. I will use a more expensive prostitute. In the f- no, he didn't say that. Eleven days after Intercontinental Terminal Company's t- chemical tanks erupted in flames near Houston and spread panic across the city, the company's top executive 
apologized. He had been called cowardly for not uh, surfacing, leaving a response to a sales and marketing executive after those comments were published less than three hours. ITC Chief Executive Officer Bernd Netland posted an 88-second YouTube video in which he thanked firefighters and apologized to residents of Houston's eastern suburbs where lives have been disrupted by the calamity. He did skip skip a uh, media briefing. A Mississippi hunter who shot a a rare white turkey says he's been verbally attacked after TV personality Keith Olbermann called on his Twitter followers to make the hunter's life a living hell. Oberman had tweeted a story about how the hunter had bagged the rare bird, which is not illegal to hunt, calling him a pea-brained scumbag. He also said the nitwit clown who wrote the newspaper story about him should be fired. I am an opponent of trophy hunting and remain so, but nobody should feel threatened, Oberman tweeted. This was anything but my intent, so I unreservedly apologize for this tweet. After more than three years of considerable consumer prodding, ranging from lawsuits to 35,000-plus person petitions, Apple has finally admitted and apologized for the fact that there are still problems with its thrice-updated butterfly keyboard. We're aware that a small number of users are having issues, and for that, we are sorry. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. conclude this week's edition of the show back next week on the radio at the same time on this same station in all likelihood and on your other audio device of choice when you choose because it's all about choice isn't it really no why do you hate freedom uh the uh, email address for this program playlist of the music heard here on your chance to get cars i talk t-shirts all available at harryshearer.com and I tip the Le Show Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Sensory of Progress Productions, originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.